Hey everyone, Asim here. Carbon Hack is back this year. The hackathon will take place from Monday, March the 18th to Monday, April the 8th, 2024. Carbon Hack 24 is all about redefining the way we measure software to reduce its environmental footprint. At the heart of this hackathon is Impact Framework, an open source tool that lets you compute and report the environmental impacts of software applications accurately. Here's the challenge. In small teams, participants will have the freedom to choose from a variety of prize categories. So how can you become part of Carbon Hack 24? It's as simple as signing up on our website at grnsft.org forward slash hack forward slash podcast. Join us for three weeks of exciting challenges where engineers, designers, and content creators will use Impact Framework to measure software's environmental footprint. We can't wait to see what innovations and solutions emerge from this incredible event. See you there. You can also say, why don't you use C, right? This would be the, the direct response to people. And then there's always people saying, yeah, but Python developers are easier to get. The development speed is so much faster. So obviously you have a time to product, but you also have a, a time to fix. Like software sustainability is not only about green stuff. It's also about maintainability. Hello, and welcome to Environment Variables, brought to you by the Green Software Foundation. On our show, you can expect candid conversations with top experts in their field who have a passion for how to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of software. I'm your host, Chris Adams. Hello, and welcome to This Week in Green Software, where we bring you the latest news and updates from the world of sustainable software development. I'm your host, Chris Adams. In this episode, we're going to talk about working out the carbon footprint of any open source project on GitHub, myths around decarbonizing cloud platforms, and how to make your code 68,000 times more efficient with one weird trick. But before we dive in, let me introduce my guest for this episode of This Week in Green Software. With us today, around the corner, we have Arne Tarara. Hey, Arne. Hey, Chris. Uh, yeah, hi, I'm Arna Terrera. Uh, I'm the CEO at Green Coding Berlin, and I'm super excited to be on the show. Some regular listeners might have heard the name before, very often in a slightly, I would say, more humoristic sense, <laughs> because the name is more expressive than it is creative, and I heard Asim lately making a pun about it, but in all fairness, he was not the first. <laughs> but on the flip side, the name says exactly what we're doing on a daily basis. Like, we're a very small team, we have four people of senior engineers, that work on open source tools that allow companies and engineers to measure and quantify carbon and energy cost of software. I think our most relevant software, the Green Metrics tool, we will talk about later. But apart from that, to give a bit more insight what we're doing, is we consult companies and also work in government initiatives, like, for instance, the Germany's Blue Angel certification for software, which I think was also slightly mentioned in the last episode. And with software open source communities, like, for instance, Wagtail, that I know, Chris, you're also involved with, and, and advancing the software industry as a whole through the open source tools and research that we're doing. Cool. Thanks for joining us. And just before we dive into the world of technology, how was your weekend anyway? We have the luck currently in Berlin, as you probably also know, that it's very sunny. We just we had this very rainy phase before, and so my partner and I ventured out onto the Tempelhofer Feld, which is this super big area. I have to make it a guess, but I would say it's 
something like one or two square kilometers at least. So it's mm -hmm. really big. So you can sometimes not really see the end of the other side because there might even be some mist or I don't know what's going on. And there was this kite festival. So there was this advertisement in the newspaper about it and I was directly hooked. Like you get these 50 meter long kites. Well, something like a bear or something mm. like a... Um, I actually don't know what this animal is called in English, but we call it a rochen. I think a stingray is the English term. So it's like super cool looking. Like the, you, you look up and 50% of your view field is full of this kite. It was really nice. And obviously lots, lots of beer, as usual in Germany, and lots of food. So it was a very nice uh, venturing out. Slight sunburn was I had to take in. But apart from that, super nice weekend. Cool. Good stuff. Nice to hear. Okay, if you are new to this podcast, what we typically do is we just run through some stories that uh, we've been collecting over the week and we share some of the kind of takes and reckons on this. What we also do is any links or any stories or things we discuss, we share in the show notes for the podcasts that are going to be available on podcast.greensoftware.foundation. So that's the plan. And I should, just before we go, I should also introduce myself. Sorry. My name is Chris Adams. I am the executive director of the Green Web Foundation, a nonprofit working to, uh, towards an entirely fossil free internet by 2030. And I'm also one of the chairs of the policy working group. In okay, Arne, are you sitting comfortably? Perfect. I'm, I'm ready to go. In that case, let's begin. Okay, let's look at the first story. The first story we have here is actually the reference for this 68,000 times faster uh, trick. Uh, this is about the new programming language called Mojo, which has been addressed, has been published, and is largely, as I understand it, it's like a really, it's like a, a fork uh, of, a much faster fork of Python. So Python might have been one of the slower languages, there are some clever things that this language does to make it much faster. And Arna, I, I know that you are a bit of a Python coder. I figured if there's anything, I, I was, when you read about this story, what kind of springs to mind? Maybe you could share a little bit or share a few reckons on this one. Mm, yeah, sure. You, you sent me the headlines before so I can at least have a quick look into it. And I was also directly surprised, 68,000 mm -hmm. times, never seen this before. I think the general term is every, in, in general we have to saying every statistic is, Translation, but I hope everybody gets what I mean by that. So a benchmark always only works with the boundary conditions you give it, and obviously everybody gets a different result. Nevertheless, what you hear very often if you're in this field for a bit of time is this one study from the Portuguese people who made this energy efficiency across programming languages, and C was the baseline, which is very often said it's, it's the fastest language because it's also so simple and so near to the OS itself. And then Python clocked in, I think, at 75 times um, worse than, than, mm -hmm. than the task that they gave it to C. It's always a bit biased. It was only compute, like no network I/O or nothing. But again, coming back to the topic here in particular, 68,000 times was even a bit surprising to me. Like, where do they leverage all this performance? And it's actually a three-part blog series. And if you, I think it's in the second blog post where they highlight what they have actually been doing. It's like the, the lift up they get from using just Mojo is something like in the, in the 80 times or 90 times. So it's not that super different, at least from this initial Portuguese paper. And then they leverage functionalities that you typically can't use in, in Python directly. So they use these vector instructions. Some people know them as, um, as SSE or I think MMX was also a vector instruction at the time. And the, yeah, it was still in the 486 processors, so way, <laughs> way back. 
but it's, but it's basically the same um, structured set. So you have, you have a broader register set. You can do multiple calculations at the same time. And they get bigger and bigger over time. So then they feed it in there. And then I think they get something like a, a couple of hundreds. And then they parallelize it. So which is in the end the trick. So they use an 88 core processor or 88 thread processor. And then they get 88 times the boost out of it. And at some point you arrive, I think over 10 iterations or so, they then arrived at the 68,000 times. This incredibly large number. Yeah. So for people who are Python programmers, this and, your, and you think about the efficiency of the code that you're using, it's both... You can think of this as like Python Plus, and uh, yeah. this isn't open source yet, although the organization and one of the people who's really pushing this does have a track record of open sourcing tools. So the people who worked on the Swift language have also been working on this part here. And as I understand it, the general idea is to make it is essentially take some Python code and do a lot of clever stuff at the compiler level. So as a, as a programmer, you don't necessarily need to do loads and loads of really know too much about the internals of, of, some, of, of a program. You let the compiler do a bunch of really clever stuff, which ends up speeding up things impre impressively. Whether this is, this is also something, in my view, this, there is a bit gimmicky in that sense that this is the only program, programming language or piece of software I've ever seen where instead of having like .py or .js, they have a .fire emoji as the way to actually identify some code. And I'm not sure if there really is a kind of actual more human readable version of this as well or easier to type kind of extension. But that kind of gives you, it, it, it seemed interesting enough to share with other people. And whether some of these ideas will make it into Python mainstream, we, it'll be really interesting because Python for the longest time has been maligned as a very slow language. Here it does give this idea that, yeah, if you make changes at the kind of compiler level, maybe we don't all need to become green software specialists to actually realize some kind of meaningful reductions in the actual energy usage of the stuff we're using. Yeah, no, I'm totally on board with this one. And I think it's also one of the more interesting and fancy news to share first, because <laughs> it has this major full-mouthed promise that you bring with it. Python, the what, what I think I can also bring to the table here in terms of discussion, because I had it so often, is you can also say, why don't you use C, right? This would be mm -hmm. the, the direct response to people. And then there's always people saying, yeah, but Python developers are easier to get. The development speed is so much faster. So obviously you have a time to product, but you also have a, a time to fix. Like software sustainability is not only about green stuff. It's also about maintainability. And I think we will come later into the podcast to this topic because this is one of our research fields, like software lifecycle, looking at the software lifecycle in particular. You can only really say if Python or C is better for you as a company if you also know how much does the development cost you in terms of touching code again, in terms of getting developers, etc. Yeah. But also in cost of runtime. And I think we'll bring up the notes in there when we talk about it. But one, maybe what I have here, because you said it's not open source, what I've seen lately, it was on a German news blog, I will put the German link in here, mm -hmm. is something that is basically, I would say, the underlying part of it. Like the optimizations that are applied in Mojo are automatic. But if you want to know where your code is slow and what you can do on a programmer level to also advance yourself as a programmer, there is this, I think it's from the MIT, it's like an open source thing that scans your code in Python and gives you the recommendations that you need to do, which means be offloading to the graphics card or to CUDA, or which would be touching code that is really badly written or is, is just worse ah, in Python. Maybe this will be a thing that shows up in Copilot or various 
code rewriting tools that seem yeah. to be making up into people's different environments for writing applications these days. All right, thanks for that, Arna. Should we look at the next story that we have here? Sure. Okay, so this one is uh, from Scaleway, which is one of the larger French uh, cloud hosting firms. They have, a, they have a four part series specifically about how engineers can make IT more sustainable. And there's a couple of really, in my view, quite interesting t tidbits that come out of this based on how they've seen people using their own infrastructure. Arna, was there anything that jumped out at you when you were looking at this stuff in particular? Yeah, actually, I have been following the Scaleway series for a while because um, as a CEO of a recording company, I have the most full-fledged thing you can do. I have a Google alert that alerts me about new green coding topics. So this one comes up often, like Scaleway is doing actually some PR work in the sector. And um, from what I know from the outside, they seem to be yeah, very authentic about what they are doing in terms of the data center. And yeah, they have these series in order to highlight new tips to developers, what should be looked at or what are typically best practices, etc. And what they have been talking about is a study from Google in, in this latest post where they say that Google with their cloud product assumes, oh, I have to look it up in the article, but it was something like 60, 60 gigatons, 60 megatons of CO2, which just is happening from uh, machines that are idling or storage that is not even read or mm. ri uh, written to for a while. And um, Google is actively, is, sorry, is actively talking to these customers through something like a notification in the interface that says, hey, you have these stale services. They also incur costs, but mm. more problematic for, for us as a whole is they also incur a lot of carbon. Do you still need them? Which is obviously a nice story to tell from Google because they are slightly cutting to their own flesh because obviously for storage, they also get money, but their concern seems to be bigger and they're going through the green route. And these numbers are so large very often, right? If you if you look at some tools and they, then you have these milliwatts or something that you're looking at and somebody talks about tons of carbon. Um, yeah, it directly, I was find it directly interesting. But on the flip side, what we have been looking at into a research project was leveraging the, the YouTube API and basically looking at all the videos that nobody's looking no. at. Because there is, <laughs> I would say there is more in terms of that storage, so to say, that nobody's accessing. But it might be the case that somebody accesses it at any time and then Google can, like put, putting the, the, the bad complaining head on here, then Google can still play out an advertisement. So maybe this is why they don't clear. And is, is, is that actually a proverb in, in English, like sweeping in your own front yard? Sweeping your own front yard is, I think there is, we have that context with that, that that concept. I'm not mm. familiar with the term. Can I just check with you? So one of the things you've mentioned is this thing that Google's doing, which essentially sounds like the cloud version of basically telling people, "Hey, you left your lights on when you left when you left the office today." So they're mm. telling people that they're leaving things on, and that you maybe you know, do you really need that light to be on? Essentially, that's one thing they're doing here. And there's this other part, which is that you folks have been looking at. Which videos are on YouTube are getting the get, get getting the, the views? Is that what you're referring to just then, Arna? The the idea was to um, we never actually executed the research project. So the idea was to query the YouTube API for videos that have have been uploaded a year ago but have two views or so, right? Mm -hmm. And then kind of get an estimation of how many dead videos might there be on YouTube, and then through some papers that have these calculation formulas, like how much dead storage costs, which is somewhere on a hard disk or on a tape mm. or whatever, and then just make a, an estimation how that is, and make an article about of it. Yes, something like this. There are different variants you can go, but I think this is the gist. Ah, 
do you know what? that's a very you raise a good point about what you do with very infrequently accessed information and what how that should be, should be stored we'll come back to that a little bit later because mm. there are some guidelines around moving this is actually one thing that i saw in the scaleway piece was basically this idea that if you've got storage there are ways that you can store it in a way which is going to match it to how often you think something's going to be used so if you store something in ram for example really easy to get but or if you store something in say object storage you can put something in a colder form of storage that's where you might not access it quite so quickly but it's going to be a lot cheaper and you can go all the way down to storing things on tape which basically doesn't even need running power at all in many so yeah there are some ideas like that okay cool should we look at the next this ne next story we had here actually anna so uh yeah absolutely one... so i think you still mean in the scaleway article right because it has very many bullet points a yeah the second one that i found most interesting is the, they talk about these software lifecycle and how mm. this is a topic of concern and soon coming because they are a EU company and we have this corporate sustainability reporting directive. The CSRD, the Corporate yeah. Sustainability Reporting Directive that lands at the end of 2024. Yes. Yeah. So so they are talking about this because as a data center they are I think in two ways affected. Like they are affected directly and also as a supplier because they host the services for so mm -hmm. many companies in there. As I said this is a, an upcoming thing so methods will be standardized how you even look at this stuff but also software lifecycle will become a, a different view i would say as a developer so you not only can say i'm looking at what is my software using in the runtime phase but also mm. if you are a container provider like they for instance are there is something like a boot phase or there's something like an installation phase if you want to make up phases that are specifically for software but if you go through the classic means of a lifecycle assessment, you have something like a removal phase also. Mm -hmm. So what does it cost you to remove stuff from caches? You have something like a development phase. So how much does it cost you to develop the software and also to, to test the software? So how much do the pipelines cost? And I found it super interesting that this is now pushed forward by one of the bigger data centers because this is so much entailed with the work that we do, for instance. Like if you we mentioned the green, or I mentioned the green metrics tool earlier, which is, mm. I would say, our flagship product. This is, in essence, I would say, a benchmarking software that has this lifecycle approach integrated because you have to provide it with infrastructure and code, so something like a Docker Compose file, for instance, and then it will spin up the containers, it will install all the packages that are in the Docker files or whatever you have, and then it will coin this as the uh, as the boot phase when the container started and before that when the containers are created on the system with all the downloading it will coin it as the installation phase mm. and even before that it will also have an idling phase so it will also tell you what your system is doing if nothing is happening in particular then you go through the classic runtime so the software is run against whatever it has to do so if it's a, a number crunching then it will do that but if you have a more elaborate scenario, let's say you have um, something that also Greenframe uses, which I think was also mentioned on the podcast before, so something like an end-to-end -end test. So mm. oftentimes you have a Selenium test where you instruct a browser, go to this page, click here, upload a form, query an mm -hmm. API, behave like a user, so to say. So this is then the runtime, and then later on everything's removed, which is mostly clearing databases and removing caches. And this is this small window that you typically come across when you interface with the software uh, and when you run the software and in order to also give a holistic view for developers and enterprises then you need something like our pipeline tools like we have tools that you can mm. plug into github and gitlab and then you see what your pipeline costs on github for instance in terms of carbon and co2 and for a development tool i hope we have something to share soon because this is still 
internal R&D. It will be something like a small tool that you have in your top taskbar, and it will always scan all the processes you're running on the system and then match them to the software you're currently developing. So every time you change your GitHub repository on the command line, it will attribute it to a different project that you're developing on. All the auxiliary products will be split on. And I think there will be a lot of discussion coming up because the question for me that I have for you is, when you are coding, would you say your Spotify that is running should be attributed to the software development cost, or is it something that you should cater for privately, right? Although Spotify might help you concentrating, this is a discussion to be had, I think, but I think the interesting part is I haven't seen any tool out there that does something like this, that works alongside a developer on its own machine, maps it to the project, and then integrates it with a bigger picture of the pipeline, runtime, installation, etc., to give a full picture of the software. So this thing here of expanding what people talk about when they measure it, uh, to look at the life cycle at the beginning and the end. This is actually, I think this actually may be one of the next kind of frontiers of what we have because when a lot of the time people are talking about there is this kind of this kind of received wisdom that it makes a lot of sense to use serverless tools because you switch things off all the time. You're only paying for the the actual request you're using. And there's this kind of this idea that that's going to be clearly the greenest way to think about this. But obviously, there's going to be an, an impact associated with keeping caches warm so you can serve responses and everything like that, just like you said. I think this is interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing some of this come out the door, actually, because the example you mentioned of does the music you're listening to does that count when you're writing some software? The only organization I can think of that's been including anything like that so far is Mozilla, when they started trying to work out the environmental impact of the Firefox browser itself, where 98% of the environmental impact of their of their reported organizational footprint was associated with the end users. And for that, they basically looked at the entire computer being used. So rather than actually splitting up to say, here's just Firefox's part, they looked at the entire machine thinking, well, you need an entire computer to be using this. So that's how we're going to report that. And whether they're going to do that going forward is another matter, because if you have a way to cut down the biggest chunk by a significant amount, I can totally see a lot of effort and a lot, a lot of temptation to do that, especially when other organizations aren't currently reporting that, for example. So, yeah, thanks for the thought-provoking point, actually, there, Arno. Okay, should we have a look at the one of the next stories that came up sure. here? Sure. Um, do, do you want to go through and then add chip in? Or yeah, yeah. Up? Okay, Arno, next story. This one is from Apple. They made a big, splashy release last week about A, unveiling their first carbon-neutral Apple Watch, but also they've done some work to start mainstreaming grid forecasting. Uh, have you, did you get a chance to look at any of this stuff? Because I think this is really interesting seeing such a large company really try to start talking about this, especially when an organization is based in the home, but also to have it run through the entire system. I, I want to see what, how you thought about some of this, because... Apple generally being quite a leader on a bunch of this stuff, but I know there's been some pushback in a, nu in a number of sustainability circles talking about the idea of branding a piece of electronics as carbon neutral these days. Yeah, I mean, I got the article actually from a co-worker who is a big Apple fanboy, if you want to put it like so. I'm, but saying that, I also use myself a Mac because I just think it's, it's the best machine for me. And I was actually pretty happy about the, the news statement. I, I looked into the official Apple statement directly, so what they had in their newsroom. And although I don't use an Apple Watch, I think all the moves they had made total sense. Like they switched the armband, which was leather, for something which is way more 
sustainable but also carbon neutral to produce in the end. I think they cut down on, on the cost for making the casing. And then on top of that, the, the whole story spun around the, the Apple Watch, as, as I read it at least. On top of that, they introduced this functionality that you can actually look when is the best time to charge all your other electronic devices. So you have it basically in arm's reach to save carbon, so to say. And I found this pretty cool because also the GSF had this hackathon, I think in 2022, if I'm not mistaken, to also use the open source SDK in order to in order to get the grid intensity and then mm. write an application around it. And I found it very lacking that in my operating system, I don't know, for instance, when to plug in the laptop or when to mm. use a compute intensive task. So we handed in at the time a small tool where you, whenever you run an intensive task, it will give you an info that this resource is currently blocked, like a network, for instance, and you can unblock it if you're on a green carbon or not. And I think this gives a very strong intention to people and drives this whole topic forward. The, the downside that I've read, because you mentioned some people give pushbacks on this, is that obviously you can make the argument that Apple, as, as a big company with so many money reserves, can do so much more and they focus on this small Apple Watch. But if you, I think the podcast is also about opinions. And if you ask my opinion, I think it's a really cool way to do it. They probably can do more, but it's still the best that I've seen lately from a big company because they know how slow enterprises can be and how heavy it is to push such a project. So yeah, for me, it's a positive news, I have to say. Okay, cool. Thank you for this. All right. So we've shared a couple of links to both uh, the wide story about why this won't be carbon neutral, as well as why this is considered carbon neutral, as well as talking about some of the most recent things they've done about essentially exposing the grid intensity or, um, in America to pins it. So, so you can basically make somewhat more informed decisions about when and how you use various kinds of electronics. Okay. All right. I'm going to come for one story, which is actually... This is something that this is the culmination of some work with the Google Summer of Code. Uh, this is from Wagtail. So there's a story about Wagtail 5.1 gets greener and leaner. Um, this one here is this is basically a follow on from uh, a project that um, we did where we work. We did a work uh, with uh, a open source project called Wagtail. It's a very it's a quite well-known uh, piece of software that's used on the NASA website, on Google's blog, on uh, uh, on Mozilla's website, for example. And um, we basically had a early career technologist work to include AVIF encoding into the actual platform because when Wagtail looked at all of their the emissions associated with the work that they're doing from the software point of view, the images was the biggest thing for them to work on. And this got merged into the project and I figure this might be one that is, might be worth talking about because I know that we were using uh, the sustainable web design methodology to work this out. But there's some other work we're doing now for trying to understand the environment impact of the project at various other places. And the idea being is if you work on a high profile Python project here, then you've got a kind of reference, reference for other projects to, to follow on from here. So Arno, anything catches your eye or any reckons that you're in for this one here? Because we did start looking at some of the code that you had and we were using, we were looking at the green metrics tool to come up with some green metrics with a tool, basically. Yeah. <laughs> True to the name, so to say. Yeah, I'm actually super excited about the project. Can you can you actually tell me right away, because I think this is also the most interesting for the listeners, in which version will it be integrated? It's already out. So we started in summer. Uh, uh, we got the first part finished and merged in. And uh, then it was released, I think, in 
I think it was in the middle of August is when it came out, actually. So the release date for this was 1st of August. So the project started in, I think, midway through June. And uh, then, yeah, it got it, it was merged in time to make it to the release uh, and then came out on the 1st of August. There's a bunch of other part on there. And if you look at the Wagtail sustainability kind of section in their docs, it's really good. And it has a bunch of really useful guidance. And there's also a roadmap of new things uh, following on from this, like different places you can scale down the project with the idea being that if you've got something here, then it can be adopted by other similar projects who are trying to adopt this because you do see you you do start to see some open source projects trying to optimize for this like wordpress is an example of doing things in this field as well now yeah i think i see it here now because my question was mostly related to the version number of the wagtail and i think 5.1 right that's so correct yeah, yeah yeah sorry i did overlook it first but now i see it because you pinged us like a year ago or so, and we had this mini project with Thibault, which is one of mm. the main maintainers of Wagtail, by creating something like a... Wagtail comes along with these super nice bakeries, so it has like a reference implementation. Mm -hmm. We were super interested to look at it with a green metrics tool to just see, okay, how much does a typical visit to a Wagtail site cost? And then Thibault implemented all these pages, a contact page. He implemented a caching system. Mm -hmm. You could go to a list page and whatever page types Wagtail has. But I think our project is still on the four-point branch, so we have to update that yeah. in order to look at the whole ABIF thing, because the interesting point that I see here, and I think this is also what, what I think Wagtail wanted to do in particular, is to estimate also the net gains of it, because ABIF yeah. is obviously better, this is why it was developed, and it's also way newer than JPEG, right? So in all fairness, it's just a newer standard, so chances are high that it can be more efficient. But the question is, at what cost uh, does this come along? Because AVIF is a stronger compression, it needs more CPU, it might need more memory to do it. But on the on, on the gain side, you then save the network transfer. But is it really worth the cost implementing that? And this is exactly the thing, yeah. Yeah, and we had this software lifecycle topic before. I think this touches all in the same domain. You have to broaden your picture as wide as you can in order to make the boundary there where the optimizations or losses that you are creating through the um, code that you write are not outside of this boundary and you create a false closed picture of it. Um, this is actually super interesting and we really have to update our code. So let me write it right <laughs> now that, that I write to go an email right after the call if we can get this pushed to the 5.1 branch and then make the measurements available as soon as we can because we have this in so many other places. Have you, for instance, read the article on the Green Software article blog recently about a super cool product from Cast? or CAST, mm. I hope I pronounced it correctly. They are a member of the Green Software Foundation, and yeah. they have developed basically a tool that can look at a code repository, look at a running piece of code also, mm. so it's like an, an agent you can plug into. At least is how I understood it, so there might be small bits and pieces that I didn't get correct, but the end result is you get a dashboard with so many green coding optimizations that you can do. And there's mm. also another project, I think it's called EcoCode, which is Python, JavaScript, supports a couple of languages. Mm and taps into SonarCube, like this, many enterprises as you use it, typical static code analyzer. But the question that I have always when I use these tools is, how much cost do these tools need in order for the optimizations that they give you? So mm. we also contacted Cast about it, and we had a video call, and we pitched them a joint research project about it. And yeah, this is still, this contact is still in the works, if that is going to happen or not. But I think this is a very interesting thing. You get all these recommendations and then you can do 50 recommendations on it. You have to sync in 20 developer hours. Your product gets 1.0.1% better. But SonarCube used, I don't know, five, 
five kilowatts of, of energy. Too much, obviously, now, but a tough question to ask because sometimes the optimizations might not even worth taking yeah. if you don't save anything in the long run, right? This so is this actually, is why I'm yeah. super interested in, in the ABIF case because I think this will be a net gain and it's even better if you can underlie it with some hard numbers. This is exactly the reason. This is actually where we where, where the next step for some of this is to, after doing this work, there's, there were some trade-offs associated with this and we'll share a link to some of the issues where we explore some of this. One of the key things is that okay, we might have made this part a bit more efficient, but have we just shifted all the work onto an end user's device? And are we making them do the work for this now? And this is this really speaks to this idea of, okay, where in the boundary does this actually take place? Because if you assume that you have some responsibility, then you do have it, but you can end up with a scenario where just by making your thing super efficient, you just push all the load onto someone else's kind of balance sheet, as it were. This is some of the problems with when we think about carbon accounting that we need to kind of address, especially in the kind of digital realm. Because, yeah, how you design a system can very much change whose computers are doing all the hard work to actually make an experience possible. But, yeah, I'll happily share the links for that because there's a bunch of stuff. I don't know of many other projects that are in the open that are doing this right now. And it wouldn't be that difficult to actually get the numbers out because there's actually a decent data set available for that already. Okay. All right, then. I think we're coming up to time. So maybe we'll just do a quick run through of some of the events that are coming up. And then, Anna, I think um, we might have just one, one, one little question and then we might wrap up, actually. So the Green Software Foundation runs a series of meetups as well as having events in the future. And in the last month, We've seen a new a number of new meetup groups open up. There's one in Karlsruhe, Germany. Arne, can you tell me what the deal with Karlsruhe is? Because I see it showing up in a few places and I've never been there. And I'm a little un unclear because I, I used to know of it as like an old and previously industrial area. Is there like a science area behind it or is it like a tech, a real tech sector in the country? Yeah, I actually can't tell you how it came to be. Karlsruhe is really... I know Aydin as a friend who is, who's running this meetup over there and he has a big software company where they develop software for other people. And he told me that the, how do you say, like the industry share of IT in Karlsruhe is above 50%. I, I think I have 60 in my head. It might mm -hmm. be slightly more or less, which is crazy. Like so half every, the companies are tech companies in this one city. Yeah, and, and this also entails the money that flows into the city in particular through taxes and stuff. So IT is a big topic um, over there. Ah. And they have something like the the Cyber Forum, which is, I think, even, even a Germany-wide known, how do you say, group of people who are in something like a industry. Yeah, I don't want to put a name on this one in particular, but the Cyber Forum is very big. So if you advertise something there, you reach a lot of people that also work for big enterprises. And there's a lot of IT stuff going on there, which might be under the radar when people always hype Berlin or something mm. as, as, as a hotspot for developers. So it's so a big area, and he has very good topics on the meetup groups. I think there's even something out with the Cloud Native Sustainability Week. I think you also wanted to touch on that, right? Yeah, we'll touch on that. Okay, so there's... Okay, thanks for the kind of minor geography lesson there. Thank you, Anna. So we have um, new meetup groups being opening up in Scotland, in Brighton, in Oslo, Norway, and Belfast, Ireland. So if you're in any of those countries or cities, that might be something for you. And the other thing you did mention, Anna, is this Cloud Native Sustainability Week. So the second week of October, we'll share a link to this, there's a series of events all through that, like a really chock full of events for people who, who have an interest inside this. And then finally, on the 16th of November, there is the big event from the Green Software Foundation called Decarb. So if you go to 
dcarb.greensoftware.foundation. You can learn a little bit more about that um, event taking place there with a bunch of speakers. And if you have something that you want to share to an audience, the CFP is still open. That's what we have going on there. Anna, I've really enjoyed nerding out with you and a bunch of this stuff. We normally have a kind of little wrap-up question towards the end. And I'll just share it with you to give us a nice kind of wrap-up for this. So do you have a green tech wish list? And if so, what's at the top of it for you these days? Yeah, so my we touched about this Apple topic before. And I think I mentioned that I would really like to have the possibility in my operating system to directly see if any code that I can run now will be greener or less green because of the grid and everything that is entailed to it. So this would be something that I would really like to see Apple also integrate into macOS and mm. also be super reliant uh, on the data that I get. But on the other side, we are working in an R&D company and we typically as a team develop the tools that we really want to have. So I'm mm. in the very beneficial position that we can Scratch your own niches, basically. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's very often happening that at least we can do a prototype if we think a topic is interesting. But I think when I talk, look at enterprises and stuff like this, the easiest thing to do and which is very easy in reach is like combining the grid and the operating system to give developers the empowerment to choose at least on that. All right. Okay. So you said something interesting there. Right now, with cloud computing, I can do this really easily, right? Not really easily. It's doable where you can get a uh, hour by hour figure of the carbon intensity of the power you're using. So you can work out the average carbon intensity of an application or something, right? But I can't do that with my own laptop. I can't do that with my home. And I feel that in the same way that you if we're going to be doing, if we're going to talk talk about how green the energy is, and we've so we've accepted that the the energy will be greener at certain times of day and uh, less green at other times of day, then I don't know if any organisations that currently give me a figure of showing this was the average carbon intensity of the power you've used last month or even every day. I would love that to exist, and I'm pretty sure that can be buildable but I haven't seen it being done at a kind of personal or house level. That's my kind of wish list for someone to make because it's totally buildable, but doesn't exist yet. And I don't, know, I don't have the time to build it myself. All right. Yeah. Right? We could do a buildable I, thing. I, I yeah. totally know what you mean. I know you come initially from the UK and it just, did you know that Octopus, which is, I think, UK-based initially, and they already have that because the grid in the UK is so much more smart than the German one is, that they just came to Germany also? Have you, have you noticed that? I did know about that. And Octopus, they, so they are, they're one of the people who do expose this. And actually, I didn't think about that, but they do, they may well have APIs that can expose that. So if you're listening to this podcast and you use Octopus, please do set, or if you work for Octopus, please do tell us if this is a, can actually be exposed because I think it'd be a nice bit of nerdy fun to share with people. Mm, yeah, super nice. All right, Arno, thank you very much for coming on to the show and thank you for working on all the various open source tools that we've used in the organization I work in. And uh, yeah, have a lovely week and hopefully you get to enjoy some more kite surfing and gigantic kites in the Tempelhofer Feld of Berlin. Chris, thank you so much for the invitation and also good week to you. Cheers, man. Okay, bye. Ciao. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Environment Variables on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave a rating and review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we'd love to have more listeners. To find out more about the Green Software Foundation, please visit greensoftware.foundation. 
That's greensoftware.foundation in any browser. Thanks again and see you in the next episode.